Pain Talk, a podcast for patients living with pain and those that care for them. Now here's your host, palliative and emergency care physician, Dr. Maureen Allen. Welcome back, everyone, to another exciting podcast. So today, I'm really thrilled to talk with two individuals about a really important interprofessional program that's made a difference in many people's lives, including healthcare providers, but also individuals who have a lived experience with chronic pain and substance use disorder, in particular around the Atlantic region. So when we're talking the Atlantic region, and we'll go into this a little bit more with Dr. Hiscock and uh, Shelley um, LaDrew. But when we're talking about the Atlantic region, we're talking about New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, PEI, and Newfoundland. So the East Coasters, not Toronto East Coast, it's going further to the Atlantic Ocean, my friends. Now, I'm always, this always brings something up for me because I always find time zones really confusing. So when I'm trying to connect with individuals sort of in the Ontario area and they talk about being Eastern, I just find that very confusing, even though I know we are the Atlantic region. But I kind of digress. So, of course, uh, what we're talking about in this podcast is the Atlantic Mentorship Network for Pain and Addiction. So now before we start, I have a conflict of interest that I need to disclose to you guys. So I'm not only a member of the Atlantic Mentorship Network, but I also provide clinical support and expertise for the pain arm of the network. My colleague, Dr. Dave Martell, provides the addiction arm expertise. Just to step back for a sec, the term expertise always makes me feel a bit uncomfortable. Are we ever experts in the areas that we work in? So I just, I just want to kind of digress and tell you a little brief story about, about expertise. So early in my career, especially as a palliative care consultant, I developed a keen interest in methadone for pain. And I suddenly became my community's expert, but did not feel like an expert. And I remember having a conversation with a good friend and a palliative care colleague of mine, uh, Dr. Mike McKenzie. And I said, geez, Mike, you know, I keep getting referred to be the, to, referred to as the expert in methadone in our community. And he said, look, Maureen, he said, we are in the land of the blind and you can see with one eye. That's what expertise is, my friend. So I just want to put that out there that I don't want to put out that I have all the answers. In fact, this is one of the reasons I love doing the podcast is I love picking the brains of other experts so that we can all be better for it in the end. So let's come back to the conversation at hand. So why am I talking about the Atlantic Mentorship Network? But so here is uh, where it gets really interesting. So the Canadian Pain Task Force, which we've talked about in previous podcasts, put out in their report that the Atlantic Mentorship Network is a community of practice linking mentees directly to more than 200 pain and addiction experts to discuss cases and receive various education components. So it's much broader than that, actually, because it also includes individuals with lived experience. So it has been recognized, however, as the largest network of pain addiction providers in Canada. And this was um, put forth by Cadeth in 2018. That's pretty cool, eh? I think that's pretty cool myself. I just find being part of this group, though, and sharing information with individuals who have a lived experience of pain and addiction, and also with colleagues that have an interest in this area, makes me so much smarter. For me, it's being part of a network that has helped me grow and develop not only as a human being, but also as a health professional. Hearing the stories of individuals with a lived experience of pain and addiction brings perspective and an understanding that you cannot read in a textbook. I cannot state that strongly enough. Some stories can be incredibly hard to hear, but somehow we manage to bring in humor and resiliency finds a way Uh, through many of our discussions. So, and what's really amazing from my perspective is how I'm able to apply some of those 
great tips and uh, information in my clinical practice. So it is a great way uh, for everybody to stay up to date and share new knowledge and how to best implement that in the daily practice as stated. So as mentioned, Dr. Sam Hiscock and Hickok, sorry, and Shelley LeDrew are the heartbeat of the Atlantic Mentorship Network. So I'd like to, I'd like to, the way I think about Shelley and Sam, I'm going to call him Sam, is that Shelley is the quarterback and Sam is the coach. So Shelley has her finger on everything and has this amazing skill of navigating and organizing all of us. I'm sure it's like herding cats because most of us are off into different different directions. Honestly, I don't know how she does it with such grace and humor because she's an amazing person. I've never seen her get upset. So Shelley has been the project lead for the Atlantic Mentorship Network uh, for pain addiction since 2010. Prior to joining the network, she spent several years at Nova Scotia Health's Tertiary Pain Clinic in a number of roles. During that time, she gained considerable firsthand knowledge of the importance of supporting and educating primary health care professionals in chronic pain and addiction. Throughout her career, she has had the privilege to work with an array of primary care providers at many, many organizational levels, both provincially and nationally. She has worked with institutions and governments to facilitate provider education and enhance service delivery for chronic pain and addiction sufferers. So she comes well qualified. Dr. Hiscock, or Sam, as we commonly refer to him, is a really, really busy guy uh, and wears many, many hats, which he manages to juggle very gracefully. Dr. Hiscock is the medical director of the Atlantic Mentorship Network for Pain and Addictions. Additionally, he is the chief of Office of Addictions and Mental Health, which has been embedded with the Nova Scotia Department of Health and Wellness. And this is a new department, so they've got the right person sitting at this chair. So I'm so impressed uh, that Sam is also navigating uh, through that uh, really important profile. As a currently practicing family physician, on top of everything else, and a certified specialist in addiction medicine, his clinical background is varied. So prior to his medical training, he worked as a registered massage therapist and taught massage therapy as, at, a, at the community uh, college level, which is something that I really didn't know about Sam, but it sort of fits in so perfectly because he is such a kind of calm, zen kind of guy. He really just takes in information and processes it and really comes out with some very, very smart advice and information. As a physician, he has worked in general family practice. He's done some emergency medicine, hospital-based care of the elderly and rheumatology. Throughout his medical career, he has provided mental health clinical care in a variety of settings with a particular focus on addiction care provision and working with survivors of military trauma. So prior to joining with the Department of Health and Wellness, he was the physician lead for addiction medicine for Nova Scotia's health, mental health and addictions program. He continues to maintain a psychotherapy practice on top of all of that and provides treatment for patients living with uh, opiate and addiction. So that is a lot of information. So we're just going to dive right into this podcast and hopefully you will all find this informative and uh, beneficial. So Sam, I'm going to begin with you. What can you tell us about the network's vision and its mission? The vision is very comprehensive and is, is something that is, uh, is really an ideal that we aim for. And in a sense, I don't think we're ever really, you know, think that we're going to arrive at it. More or less, what we're trying to really do is to work towards a healthcare system in which uh, pain or uh, an addiction or or both of those uh, clinical kind of entities are actually able to access care from healthcare practitioners who are compassionate mm -hmm. and skilled and have the capacity to really work with patients 
in a way that's that's genuinely engaged mm -hmm. so that yes. people really feel heard and understood and respected and cared for by the healthcare practitioners that they actually are are uh, are engaged with right mm -hmm. and ultimately what this will mean is in uh an atlantic canadian context are uh, more atlantic canadians or those living in atlantic canada who actually can get the care they need if they end up developing an addiction or if they're living with uh, persistent pain otherwise known as chronic pain and as well for the population it means a population that actually ultimately would have a reduced risk of actually developing a persistent issue with either pain and or an addiction mm. so that's the vision yeah i don't think that that's something that we're ever really expecting to be done working towards and it's a vision that is the responsibility of really the the healthcare system as a whole and all of the individuals and institutions organizations and entities that are actually part of that system in terms of its uh, funding development planning implementation you know in other words it takes it takes a village yeah <laughs> so, so i mean the mentorship network i find too sam it really helps to link different health professionals together so it kind of acts as a bridge in some ways as well. I think that's primarily what you're saying is that we need to do this together, you know, not individually. Right, which mm -hmm. is really what we do as a network to try and work towards that overarching vision, right, which we're really just one part of. And the, the mission really is, is, I think you're right on the money, Maureen. We're, we're really focused on I guess you could say our target audience, which are clinicians um, who are basically healthcare professionals and those in the helping professions who uh, work with individuals across Atlantic Canada and who uh, inevitably will be either not necessarily out of, uh, you know, sort of a, a choice to sort of focus, but will be encountering people who live with addiction and chronic pain and being confronted with how to work with individuals who are living with these disorders, all, all the way up to people who are actually doing really specialized, uh, you know, kind of clinical care, working with, uh, you know, in, in, in managing or treating chronic pain uh, or addictions. And so really what our mission is, is to bring people together and really develop what, what some people would term a community of practice, where clinicians uh, who are you know, working in all sorts of different disciplines, they could be physicians or physiotherapists or nurses, uh, social workers, occupational therapists, you name it. We've had over 21 different healthcare professions actually represented in, in the network uh, off and on over the years, that they can really come together and learn from each other. Um, mm. We know that there are hundreds and hundreds, uh, probably you could say thousands of healthcare professionals across the Atlantic provinces who actually really have a lot of experience at the front lines providing care and many, many years, you know, collectively of experience. And we really have a lot to share and learn from each other. So we also know that uh, in particular, um, our kind of core activity, the core intervention that the network really promotes, besides a whole host of educational activities, is something is mentorship, and that word is in our title. And so uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, uh, later exactly. On. How how far does the history of the mentorship go back? Um, can you give us a little bit of a historical perspective? 
Yeah, sure. I'm going to pass that one to Shelley, actually, okay. uh, just yep. because, uh, <laughs> Shelley, do you want to talk a little bit about the history? Sure. So the network actually began as a research project back in 2008, and really it came out of uh, a Nova Scotia uh, provincial task force that was uh, developed in terms of looking at the delivery of chronic pain services in the province. It was identified that there was really no supports for primary care providers in increasing their skills and their their knowledge in chronic pain management. When it started, there was probably 23 members, and uh, as Sam will allude to uh, in a bit, our membership has grown substantially to over over 300 people. Yeah, it's pretty impressive, actually. Do you, I don't know if you guys realize that in the uh, Canadian Pain Task Force, uh, they do single out the mentorship network as having the most members than any other community-based initiative. Uh, I think that was identified by Cadeth in 2018. So it's quite, uh, it's amazing how much growth there's been. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Well, it's, it's, always, it's always interesting when you start digging a little bit deeper. And I knew that the Canadian Pain Task Force had identified the program, but I was curious about what they had written. Early on, we did mention that to our listeners, um, talked a little bit about the statement from, from the uh, Canadian Pain Task Force. There was that original need, right? Like back at the time of its inception, like say in the late 2000s, you know, it wouldn't be uncommon for people to be waiting up to five years to get mm. to get access to a specialized uh, to specialized pain services. You know, of course, you know the wait list is uh, to some degree determined, uh, you know, by actually what a person you know what a person's needs are. But you know, you can imagine sitting on a wait list for five years means that person is is really their life kind of stands still during that time. And, uh, you know, it was really in that it was and, you know, it, I think it was in part the recognition that, you know, as a system, we're not really meeting the needs of uh, one in five uh, uh, Nova Scotians and Atlantic Canadians and Canadians at large who are living with chronic pain, right, and who are actually needing needing care. And the longer that they're sitting around waiting for care, the, the less likely it is that they're going to really benefit from treatment, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so like a lot of chronic diseases, if things are left to fester, right, they, they can often get more entrenched and, and uh, actually impact people's lives in a more profound way, right? So that was sort of the original kind of uh, thrust of, uh, you know, what was what was hoped to, uh, you know, what was what really the aim of the of the network was, was to really address that need. And so primary care was identified as an important sort of, you know, domain in which uh, more uh, pain care could happen. We know that the majority of people who actually get chronic pain are actually seeking care from the primary care practitioners, principally family physicians, right? Uh, at that time, you know, if you if you uh, you know took a sample of the of the typical family physician who was trained in a Canadian medical school, you know the amount of uh, ca uh, chronic pain uh, training that they had, uh, training to really manage chronic pain, uh, was actually quite uh, quite minimal. And uh, in in addition, there was a recognition that a lot of the uh, the training actually was in fact biased towards the prescribing of medications, many of which uh, for uh, for which many there were, there was actually no evidence base for them, and in fact potential for harm, you know, namely the prescribing of opioids for chronic non-cancer pain, without the adequate training to really understand how to sort of monitor for the adverse events and uh, the sort of safety concerns associated with the prescribing of opioids, you know, namely the development of addiction. Yeah, And so that actually became really a core kind of area of interest for the network itself. 
And as the network grew and matured, uh, there um, it, it really was starting to address uh, some of the needs of the primary care practitioners uh, who were really interested not only in uh, individuals living with chronic pain, but about mitigating the risk of addiction and actually engaging in understanding how to diagnose addictions and manage them. And mm-hmm. so uh, I'd say, I don't know, uh, Shelley, would you say it was about perhaps uh, maybe 10 years ago, maybe eight to 10 years ago, a decision was made to expand the scope of uh of the network from uh, enhancing the capacity of clinicians to manage chronic pain to pain and addiction. It was an actually in 2014 that we were okay. approached and uh, from, you know, from the addictions uh, in, in Department of Mental Health and Wellness. And, you know, they, they saw the need uh, and the, and the close correlation with chronic pain. So uh, mm-hmm. that's when, when, that's when the expansion happened into, uh, to the addiction world. And I think the important point that you're making too, Sam, is that what we forget, because we, we tend to put people who are living with addiction in one kind of a, of a, of a container, <clears throat> when we, when, what, we, we, what we have to realize is that addiction uh, can occur from both the medical use and the non-medical use of opioid analgesics. And I've always kind of thought about opioids the same way I think about things like um, you know, blood thinners like anti-clotting drugs, they carry risk. And if we're not managing risk with the patient, then we increase the risk of them developing life-threatening complications like a substance use disorder. And it's such a, and, and when you think about primary care, I mean, primary care practitioners are managing the majority of patients who are developing substance use disorders around opiates in particular. So they're the ones that are develop- or that are following these patients that are actually going to be managing these patients. And they are by far some of the most challenging from, because from the patient's perspective, they are just managing their pain. They're not recognizing the complication. And I think it's because we've kind of not uh, helped the patient realize that these drugs, yes, they're really important. They're very, very important for the management of pain, but they carry risk. And uh, so I think we, I think the, the, the beauty of the mentorship network is it's, it's sort of almost like a bottom, uh, bottom up kind of approach rather than an, uh, a top down kind of approach. And that we're building capacity within our communities to be able to not only manage these very uh, complicated life-threatening illnesses, but also work with patients, you know, to to prevent them. Yeah, that's right. And and uh, you know, I, I I agree I agree wholeheartedly with the way you think about uh, the prescribing of opioids, uh, Maureen. In that, you know, like uh, there are a whole host of medications which family physicians commonly prescribed for commonly occurring chronic diseases, right? Like high mm. blood pressure or cholesterol or some heart conditions, which lead people to need to be on blood thinners, as you mentioned before. And in our training, both in undergraduate medical school, as well as in our residency training, where we actually get trained to be community-based family physicians over a two-year period after medical school, you know, we get a lot of education about how to prescribe the medications, what are the appropriate doses, what are the things that you need to monitor for in terms of oh, like this person's having a particular kind of response to the medication that actually puts their health at risk, you know, which at, at its most extreme would be a life-threatening complication. So in the case of blood thinners, we know that there's some people who get prescribed blood thinners where they're at an increased risk of having uh, a catastrophic bleeding event, right, um, yeah. that actually could end their life. And we know uh, what are some of those we get trained to understand, to recognize what are the what are the factors that put that person at risk of developing bleeding, and if they're at an increased risk, 
we may still go ahead and make a decision to prescribe the blood thinner because the benefits outweigh the risk. Um, we're also uh, going to monitor that person more intensively uh, to uh, uh, look for early signs of bleeding uh, in order to uh, really nip the, any kind of life-threatening complication in, in, in the bud, as opposed to uh, someone who doesn't have those risk factors, we're not going to monitor as intensively, right? Yeah. And we have all that training, and we just never got that training for the prescribing of opioids, right? Mm. And there are, there are a number of reasons for that, I think, you know, one of which is uh, the influence of the pharmaceutical industry on medical education, in particular, uh, some... Uh, pharmaceutical uh, companies that are actually uh, funding educational resources for undergraduate medicine uh, in the prescribing of, of opioids, um, which uh, which actually promoted the uh, prescribing of their products, in fact. Um, yeah. So uh, Purdue Pharma is really famous for having done that in Canada. Um, that led to actually a significant scandal at one point at the University of Toronto. In addition, there is overall a lack of recognition in the medical community that chronic pain is a distinct disease entity, right? That it actually has very particular characteristics uh, from a neurological, behavioral, psychological, and physiological point of view that makes it really different than other medical conditions which lead to pain, such as, a, let's say, a, an acute uh, injury that leads to significant pain, like a broken bone. Right. Yeah. And so uh, the lack of that recognition means that there's also a lack of an understanding that this chronic disorder, chronic pain, needs a chronic disease management strategy, which is uh, mirrors the management of other chronic diseases, such as depression or high blood pressure or type 2 diabetes. And uh, there wasn't really, we didn't have the training to understand what the landscape of treatment is for chronic pain, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really easy to turn to prescribing a medication, which in the short run really helps people with their pain, right? Mm -hmm. Namely an opioid, yeah. um, because that seems to really solve the problem for the, for the prescribing physician. Right. So, you know, I think it, it was sort of an in, uh, in the interest of understanding uh, that we need to learn more about how to manage patients with pain in a more comprehensive way. And also we need to get trained in understanding the catastrophic, you know, potential catastrophic development of addiction in the study of chronic pain that really led to that movement to understanding addiction. Now, as you know, addiction is uh, not just about addiction to opioids and um, addiction to opioids is not always about people with chronic pain. You know, there are many, many different substance use disorders and a couple of behavioral addictions like uh, addiction to gambling, for example, that are really in and of themselves, you know, a part of a, a whole field of, uh, of clinical practice, right? Just like mm -hmm. treating the kidney is a, is a specialty, right? But that, again, most of the uh, treatment actually happens in primary care right? Doesn't happen in specialized care. And so uh, increasingly, people who are drawn to really understand patients living with chronic pain, to understand that we need to do something about the opioid crisis that was looming, and therefore were drawn to the network, also were people who, who became increasingly interested in learning more and more about addiction. So over time, that, that's sort of how we grew. Yeah. And at the same time, uh, we had... Um, you know, we had moved from being an organization that essentially acted as a as a kind of uh, non-governmental organization that received 
funding from various sources, including including uh, programs of care within the health authority, to actually being embedded within the Nova Scotia Health Authority uh, as a clinical program, and eventually uh, actually became recognized by uh, the provincial government as a really important way to enhance the capacity of the healthcare system as a whole to provide people living with pain and substance use disorders with more care more accessible care and 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 frankly uh, often uh, often better quality care than what they might receive outside of a family practice uh, type of setting. Yeah. I think it's really moved to uh, it's moved I mean I see myself even in terms of my clinical uh, practice to that harm reduction piece that what we're trying to do is to meet people where they are and to manage the risk. And I just want to add one other thing, Sam, to what you're saying is that I think for the longest time, and especially with my background as a palliative care physician, is that pain is one of those things that pulls at our heartstrings, right? It's it, it really is something that pulls the clinician in. And what we see is significant suffering with patients. And I think it's, it is important that individuals who are experiencing pain, that we do acknowledge that the, the pain that they're having is real and the suffering is real. But the mistake that we were making is that somehow we were going to fix this with a, with a medication that has a lot of limitations, more so than... So I always try to get patients to separate the medication out from themselves. I mean, the medication has inherent risks that go beyond your condition, that we need to understand how it affects us, right? But all of our prescribing, I think, with opioids is re- was really based on a moral or ethical reasoning, and we really, truly were not basing it on safety. And I think we need to embrace a lot of this pharmacotherapy, including benzodiazepines in particular, I look at primary care, is a way of seeing it as, yes, it has a place, but we have to manage risk. It cannot be just about the suffering because we need to recognize that somehow for some population, not everyone, just a small percentage of patients, that one of those risks is that life-threatening complication, which is addiction. Yeah, yeah. I think you're you're on the money there too, uh, uh, Maureen. We might get into this later, but also to sort of say that, that, you know, one of the things that really happens is that when you're dealing with patients where, you know, day in, day out, you're, you're, you're working with people who are at an in- increased risk of developing either an addiction or chronic pain, or they themselves have developed an addiction or chronic pain. You know, you're often dealing with folks who are are really have had um, a lot of hard knocks in their life. You know, yeah. uh, uh, a lot of what we call adverse childhood events. They may be individuals who really haven't learned to develop the kind of resilience that really allows them to sort of uh, face their own suffering and bear it. And so they're often presenting to clinicians, and not just to family physicians or prescribing clinicians, but to, you know, other clinicians really seeking relief of suffering, right? Yeah. And, you know, going to a physiotherapist because they've got chronic back pain and their ability to sort of cope and take their bull by the horns and take responsibility for their own health isn't really as present as we sometimes see in some patients. So it's very easy when we're feeling, you know, it's pulling at our heartstrings to then and feel as if we have nothing that we have to offer people, that the individuals themselves on the on the surface appear to be kind of sabotaging their own health care, right? Not taking responsibility for their own care, uh, not coping with life very well. It's easy to just sort of disengage and turn away, right? And I think that that's one of the roots of stigma in the healthcare system against people who live with chronic pain 
who often feel that their pain isn't recognized or isn't uh, considered valid. Also, people living with addiction, right, and all the stigma that comes from healthcare practitioners, um, not everybody, but like a lot of healthcare practitioners towards people with stigma, is a sense of futility, right? Mm -hmm. This is an awful, painful situation. There's nothing I can do about it, right? Mm -hmm. And so really, you know, part of what we what we know is the reality is that there's a lot that we can do, right, to help people living with exactly. chronic pain yeah. and living with addictions. It's not just a matter of not prescribing a medication, right? There's actually a lot that we can do. But to learn how to sort of work with people in a compassionate, open way means being given the skills, to, right, to be able yeah. to actually affect change, to genuinely help people. And it also means working with, and, uh, working with other clinicians um, and getting mentored by them. So we really kind of come to understand that there is a way to work with people uh, who often are uh, on the surface, it seems very challenging work. And not very rewarding and we learn that there are people out there doing this work who actually find it incredibly rewarding yeah. incredibly meaningful and are actually sustained by mm -hmm. working with patients who are suffering to that degree mm -hmm. and you know that's a really powerful piece about mentorship is it can really cut through stigma by giving us the ability to recognize hey this is how these other people are solving this problem. They seem to be able to do it in a very open-hearted way, but it's not like consuming them, right? They're yeah. not like sacrificing their own well-being. And they seem to actually have some skills that genuinely are, are helping people. This is really meaningful, cool work, you know? And it's kind of an yeah. antidote, right, yeah. to uh, this problem of, of clinician burnout. Is, is really coming together as a community, learning from each other, supporting each other, getting inspired by each other, and really getting more skills too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. and I'm just gonna add one other thing uh, in here. I know we're kind of digressing away from the role, but I just think the discussion is so important. Um, Sam, I, I feel as a, as a clinician, sort of I've been in healthcare for, for a long time and felt incredible pressure to prescribe, you know, opioids and benzos. I think we all did that went through that period of time until we could actually set back, step back and look at evidence. Now, I'm going to be uh, honest with you, and I, there's different ways, because, but I do feel a ton of pressure, even now as a clinician, to be prescribing, you know, cannabis. And I, I keep feeling this need to pull back, whether, because I, I understand that, you know, it, it, is, it is making a difference for some people in terms of managing their pain. But I always try to come back to, you know, does it give them purpose? Does it give them, you know, a, a functional capacity, things like that. But how we, we may see those concerns around cannabis sneaking in over the year. I, that's what I think anyway, because I do feel this unsettledness around how there is this push now uh, that we should be doing more embracing around cannabis. I'm just curious about your thoughts about that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think kind of coming back to the sort of, you know, analogy of how you feel about cannabis and the pressure with like how you have felt historically with like benzodiazepines, let's say prescribing for someone who's like, you know, in a state of heightened anxiety and they present to an emergency department, right? And, or, you know, opioids, right? Mm. Um, as well, where you, your sense is that that's not the appropriate tool for that person, right? Because I always say like every substance, every intervention you do, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's like uh, prescribing um, exercise for somebody or, you know, going to, into a hot tub or, or going out into nature, right? Or, or um, a, a medication, they're all tools, right? So we should, you know, tailor the toolkit for each individual right so i you know i'm i i'm i'm reluctant to be completely and utterly dogmatic to say that you know 
medication X is, is always, always, always a bad idea, right? Um, because they're always individuals that you have to sort of work with, right? And gauge how things are going for them. Yeah. But, you know, one thing I, you know, when I think about the evidence, right, for or against, you know, using benzos in, uh, in, in, in for the management of anxiety, and uh, let's say using opioids in a way that's not judicious, right, uh, yeah. for chronic pain, or, or embedded in a comprehensive chronic pain kind of management strategy, you, you know, what, what's really important is to recognize that when we're thinking about the suffering of the person who's right in front of us looking for immediate relief, we also have to think about the suffering that they will or will not have in 10 years from now, right? Yeah. Should we inappropriately prescribe? And I think that that's really what lies behind the evidence. It's not just saying, oh, there isn't evidence for this, so I'm not going to do it, you know, because people are like, well, look, you got to give me something, right, to relieve my suffering. Um, but it's also to recognize we have to be aware of the potential impact of prescribing substances to actually move people backwards, right? To make yeah. them, uh, for example, less independent, le uh, functioning worse, right? Yeah. Or, you know, in some cases, addiction, right? So, yeah. you know, when it comes to cannabis, right, we know that, you know, like the likelihood someone's going to become addicted to it is lower, yes. you know, than, yeah. than, uh, than other uh, substances, right, for people who use cannabis regularly. We also know that the evidence really uh, isn't uh, mature enough for us to really uh, have anything intelligent to say from a sort of a, a, a scientific point of view about whether or not uh, cannabis or the, you know, the kind of chemicals that are within cannabis that we think are active in, in uh, reducing pain, that they're useful in chronic pain, right? Or that yeah. they're safe in chronic pain. We just don't have that evidence yet, yeah. right? But to me, that's not really enough, right, to say, well, don't, don't prescribe it right? Yeah. Um, until we get all the evidence. I think we have to also just ask ourselves, okay, I've got this person in front of me. What's the, you know, what's like, if, if you were my patient, Maureen, I've got Maureen today, but then I have to think about the future Maureen, right? You know, yeah. and what her suffering is going to be like. And, you know, that's, that's my concern with uh, Medicaid or a substance like cannabis is setting aside all the issues around the fact that it's a plant. We don't really know, you know, how, like the amount of THC and CBD and the other 198, you know, uh, active chemicals in it. We don't really know, you know, what the concentration is and, and all that. But setting aside all that, we know that, you know, cannabis itself can actually impair people's ability to to cope well psychologically in the setting of certain psychological disorders like post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorders, mood disorders, right? So all of those disorders could actually worsen, right? So we know that, and not to mention the, you know, some of the medical, like physical medical complications associated with cannabis use, the impact on driving, right? You know, like your likelihood that you're going to die in a car accident is markedly increased if you use cannabis on a regular basis. Like all of these kind of factors, yeah. I think, are the ones that really matter because it's about the future suffering, not just the present suffering that we have to really think about. And I think that that's really important so that when we are, you know, if we're ever in a position where we're saying no to people, right? Like I'm not going to cannabis for you. We don't just fold our arms and say, well, we just don't have evidence for it. We have to sort of actually, in a very compassionate way, frame it up as, 
you know, like I'm actually concerned about the risk that this may have, you know, that you actually may end up feeling worse over time on this, that it really works well in the short run, but over time it doesn't, you know, mm -hmm. and when, when, when I talk to patients about, for example, uh, who uh, live with like a, an addiction to say alcohol and they're in recovery, but they're looking, they're having a, a difficult time tolerating anxiety and stress in their life. They're looking for a benzodiazepine prescription. I know that benzodiazepines are have a very similar chemical impact on our our brain as alcohol does. Not the same, but similar. And so I often use the analogy like if if you came into the doctor's office and and you told them you were anxious and the doctor prescribed you one beer three times a day as needed for anxiety, you know, would that make sense? And of course they all kind of laugh and go, well, of course <laughs> not. You know, it's laughable. But yeah. in a sense, that's kind of what we're doing with benzodiazepines, right? Yeah. And we all know how's that working out for you, right? In the and they all understand that in the short run prescribing yeah. alcohol would actually work to reduce anxiety just yes. the way that benzos yeah. do, right? Yeah. It would give you relief. The only problem is the side effect profile, which is that it ruins your life, right? Yes. So <laughs> just a minor one, eh? And, yeah. and and you know, that's the thing, like, you know, that sort of regular you know, using alcohol to treat anxiety or depression or a, a history of trauma will will actually ruin your life. And yeah. so, you know, it's that future suffering that we know that look, that's why we can't do this kind of thing. So yeah. that that actually if you can get yeah. people on board, right, with understanding yeah. that you're really there because you're caring about them, not because you're just a scientist who needs evidence to do anything you know yeah that's i also think what's... that uh, that we underestimate the power we have to give patients the habits and behaviors that they need to manage their uh, right. chronic disease right yeah. so physicians and healthcare providers uh, prescribers in particular have a lot of power to influence you know the trajectory of the where patients move in their life yeah so that's yeah, right. I, that's I haven't why written that prescription for three beer that, a day that'd be yeah, kind of interesting that's right <laughs> but that's why there are moves like there's a very good you know groundbreaking uh, sort of work that's been done in Nova Scotia actually around prescribing exercise right yeah actually exactly. literally writing a prescription right Yes. And, yeah. and, you know, you don't have to be a doctor to write a prescription for exercise, right? You yeah, know? exactly. Um, but but it, it, it has a very powerful effect on people. And in fact, there's some research um, that comes out of BC in a primary care setting uh, around prescribing nature, prescribing time in ah. nature, and the impact that that has on a number of mental health disorders. And in fact, there's a, a, a psychologist uh, at Dalhousie who's really taking on this research and trying to promote this. And it's going, there's going to be some promotion through the Nova Scotia College of Family Practice around prescribing time in nature, right? And, and it sounds kind of hokey, right? But honestly, like getting people out of the idea that you need a chemical to deal with symptoms is really, that's what's at the core of it. Really, yeah, of that kind yeah. of intervention. It's, it's like, and we can alter our yeah. own chemistry by how we think and feel in the spaces right. that we put ourselves into, right? So, yeah, and we, what we do, right? Yeah, exactly. So, going to the gym is part of addiction recovery treatment, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, or yeah. even just, I think with the nature, it, it, cause, because a lot of people, obviously it's the cost sometimes of the gyms and things, but being in nature, it, it doesn't cost us anything. We just have to be there. <laughs> you know, I think it's so important. Great conversation, Sam. So we're going to end it there and pick it up again next week, where we're going to continue our conversation around the Atlantic Mentorship Network. So thanks everybody for listening. Stay safe. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Pain Talk. To learn more about our podcast and to find links mentioned in today's show, please visit our website at paintalk.ca.